I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 57, we read The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, published in 1762. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born in 1712 in Geneva, raised in a Protestant French middle-class household. He ran away from home at 15 and converted to Catholicism. He studied philosophy and musical composition and moved to Paris in 1742, where he became friends with Denis Diderot and other philosophers. He wrote works of philosophy there as well as novels and continued to do so on his return to Geneva in 1754, where he converted back to Protestantism. In 1762, he published a social contract, but by that time his writings on religion had made him liable to be arrested in France or Switzerland. He found shelter in the lands of the Elector of Prussia until he was able to return to France in 1765. He died there in 1778 after several years of declining health. His ideas were inspiring to the French revolutionaries of the next decades. So Rousseau begins his book with that famous line, man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. And so his question, how did this transformation come about? I do not know. How can it be made legitimate? That question, I believe I can answer. He says, my purpose is to consider if in political society, there can be any legitimate and sure principle of government taking men as they are and laws as they may be. So long as people, so long as a people is constrained to obey and obeys, it does well. That as soon as it can shake off the yoke and shakes it off, it does better. For since it regains its freedom by the same right as that which removed it, a people is either justified in taking back its freedom or there is no justifying those who took it away. The social order is a sacred right, which serves as a basis for all other rights. So for Rousseau, in the beginning, humans were radically free, living in the state of nature. And at some point, men, people, somehow banded together in civil society. And unlike Locke and Hobbes, he's not going to spend much time speculating on why or how people started banding together as a civil society. He's just going to take it as it, as it is. So his task is to set forth the requ- what requirements are needed for a civil society to be made legitimate. Uh, because people, when they joined civil society, they lost their radical freedom and independence. And the question is, how do you make that legitimate? He says, the passing from the state of nature to the civil society produces a remarkable change in man. It puts justice as a rule of conduct in the place of instinct and gives his actions the moral quality they had previously lacked. Because he'll say, in the state of nature, there wasn't a lot of moral decision-making. It was basically kind of like Captain Jack Sparrow saying what a man can do and what a man can't do. (laughs) But he says, what a man loses by the social contract is his natural liberty and the absolute right to anything that tempts him and that he can take. What he gains by the social contract is civil liberty and the legal right to property in what he possesses. If we are to avoid mistakes in weighing the one side against the other, we must clearly distinguish between natural liberty, 
which has no limit but the physical power of the individual concerned, and civil liberty, which is limited by the general will. And throughout this book, Rousseau is going to describe to us what makes a society legitimate, and that basically funnels through this concept of general will that we'll get to in just a little bit. Yeah, there's there's an interesting the kind of part of it line up with a lot of what Locke was saying, uh, which we discussed way back in season one. But then there's it, it seemed like Locke's idea was that people went into society and they retained almost all of their rights, mm-hmm. just giving up what they really needed to to make a society function. You know, the the, the true like liberty of a, of anarchy they they gave up. But they, you know, society Locke would have it believe is formed to protect man's rights and especially the right of property. Whereas Rousseau was kind of taking a different look at it. it. His, and you know, correct correct me if I've read this wrong, but he seems to think we give up all of our rights when we enter into society and get them all back in a slightly different form. So like mm-hmm. we, we give up liberty and property and what we get back is civil liberty and proprietorship, which sounds, it sounds just like synonyms maybe, but they're different here. I mean, they're, they're, proprietorship is different than that ultimate right of property because now you're you you still have your property but it's sort of subject to the general will yeah and that's it's definitely a a, you can see the difference between english liberty and french liberty here there's there's different schools of thought affecting their thinkers and this is um this is rousseau's work i think is more influential in the continental tradition it's not that part of the idea at least never really caught on in England or in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the point you were making in the first place, does every individual gives himself? Absolutely. The conditions are the same for all. And precisely because they are the same for all, it is in no one's interest to make the conditions onerous for others. Since each man gives himself to all, he gives himself to no one. And since there is no associate over whom he does not gain the same rights as others gain over him, each man recovers the equivalent of everything he loses. And in the bargain, he acquires more power to preserve what he has. Each of us puts into the community his person and all his powers under the supreme direction of the general will. And as a body, we incorporate every member as an indivisible part of the whole. So, you know, throughout Locke and listeners, we uh, we recommend, I think, episode four on on John Mm -hmm. Locke, one of our earliest episodes. Unlike Locke, who is going to spend much time discussing how rights are given to the individual and the the individual is elevated and that's the most important elements in society a building block Locke is going to take a different tack he he does speak a little bit about individualism you tell me what you think kyle but but much more of his focus is on basically the collective you know you, Mm -hmm. you come together and his concept of general will is and we should talk more deeply about this, but you know, in essence, it's kind of everyone shares the same will and together we're going to stand and will it together, you know, whatever the, whatever the next government action might be. So the focus is much more on what people can do together. And I'll say real quickly, uh, our last episode on Saul Alinsky was our first installment in, you know, what we hope to be from now and again, we'll, we'll read more, uh, books written by more leftist uh, thinkers. And it should be noted, definitely, as you said, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his thought was really a building block for the French Revolution. And it's certainly a 
you know, when we're going to have a lot of examples here today, but it's certainly a building block for uh, more leftist thinking, even even in the 20 and 21st century. Yeah, I think, I mean, when you talk about the general will, I think, I think he's, it's not just sort of a poll of what everyone thinks, but more of a, a separate collective will that is made up of all of us, which is a lot of, eh, how do you tell the difference? You know, like he says that the general will can't be wrong, but the people can be wrong because they can be deceived and make bad decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't parse that. I like, well, if the people are wrong, then how is the general will still right? You know, I, I think that's, that's hard to figure. But he also, I mean, in that general will, I mean, the part you read, and there's a lot of passages like this, that the general will is never going to do anything bad because it treats everybody as a part of itself and it wouldn't do harm to itself because that's not why it was created. I, I think that is a, that is definitely a kind of thinking that is not popular on the right. I don't think we, <laughs> I don't think we would say, well, the government's all of us, so it would never do any wrong to any of us because right. It's, it's made of us. How could it? I mean, that, that, that sounds very naive. Um, yeah. Even there aren't a lot of republics for Rousseau to observe in 17, 17- 60s but even without you know having had you know the experience of 21st century people who can see different forms of republic all over the world and the things the ways they fail their people even without that experience that we have he i feel like he's a little relying a little too much on goodwill and honesty in government which i mean living under the the french monarchs i'm not sure why he would think that because they didn't they didn't rule that way Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, compare these lines to Locke and his individualism. He says, Rousseau says, from deliberations of a people properly informed, the people will always produce a general will, and the decision will always be good. Only when sectional associations are formed at the expense of a larger association, then there ceases to be a general will. The general will is always rightful and always tends to the public good. The people are never corrupted, but is often misled, and only then does it seem to will what is bad. So to your point, his, in his, in his understanding, you know, humans were born completely good and evil, he'll say only emerged in the world when, when property emerged in the world. So the people are, are good and pure and it's kind of like a, a naive, uh, utopianism vision, it seems to me, but, but kind of like, as long as people are, you know, behaving based on their nature, then everyone is going to agree on the exact same thing. So the general will to him is like, well, of course they're going to choose the right. Of course they're going to choose the good. The only time they don't choose the good is when there's a few bad apples who, who at the expense of the larger collective are going, are wanting to want to go their own way. And, mm-hmm. you know, compare that to Locke, who's basically like, people want to go their own way. <laughs> and yeah. what we need to do is figure out ways where we can, where we can work together. So very opposite visions. Yeah. And you can see kind of the, the, um, the founding fathers had this, this, dislike of faction also. Um, and I think some of that is Rousseau's influence. Um, even though they were less trusting in the general will, you know, Hamilton and Madison uh, in the Federalist papers wrote a lot about being against faction and George Washington was against faction too, which is what we, I mean, what they were talking about is what we now call political parties. And of course they formed almost instantly as soon as government started at the federal level. And there were, you know, quasi parties at state levels even before that. So it, it's, it's sort of a, I think that's one of our founding fathers 
blind spots is that they thought we wouldn't have factions. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it happened right away. And it is never, we've almost never really been without them. Uh, so, but I think that's, that's the influence of Rousseau on the, on the generation that came after him is that this idea of factions are the ones that pervert the general will. It's not that, yeah. not that any individual is wrong. It's just, you know, these shadowy organizations, you still hear people talk about it now. They hate, you know, organized political parties, you know, they, they love democracy, but the parties are all bad. But the yeah. parties, the parties always appear. There, there's always a party. You know, some states have uh, nonpartisan legislatures or nonpartisan city councils where you know there's no party listed on the ballot, but everyone's still in one. You know, I mean, and people like uh, Wisconsin elects their Supreme Court, and it's nonpartisan, but everybody knows which one's the Republican and which one's the Democrat. Right. It's, right. It, so <laughs> it's 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 part of the part of our condition. And Rousseau talks a lot about making laws later in the book and how laws can make better people. And we've been back and forth on that through a lot of authors in this, uh, in this, this series we've put together here, but he re I think he really thinks that that is, uh, that is true, but I think at least as concerns faction, it's not true. You can, you can ban any kind of faction. You can have the ballot, just list names and not parties, but people get into groups and it's just, just the way it is. So I think that, yeah. it's just a big, so something that really jumps out at me in, in here. That's a great point about the founders and, and how they read Rousseau. He, he has a chapter that's even entitled, The General Will is Indestructible. A state governed by the general will needs very few laws. And whenever there is need to promulgate new ones, that need is universally seen. And the first man to propose such a law is only giving voice to what everyone already feels. The general will is always unchanging incorruptible and pure the greater harmony that reigns in the public assemblies the more that public opinion approaches unanimity the more the general will is dominant whereas long debates dissensions and disturbances bespeak the ascendance of particular interests in the decline of the state i mean this is a very authoritarian left vision and it, it really popped in my mind like the whole you know what's what's gone on in seattle the chop the chaz whatever they're calling themselves mm -hmm. On my Twitter feed, I'm listening to these guys, and it sounded a whole lot like Rousseau. You know, kind of like this is a summer of love, and you know, every, all we need is for to push out all of these special interests, and once they're out, then we'll all just agree on what is good and what is right, and it'll be obvious that what we need is, you know, this portion of the park will belong to whoever to, or you know, will belong to the collective to, you know, grow carrots and. <laughs> And we'll have, you know, free libraries and, and all these different things. And, and to some extent, you're like, well, that's really cool. Like kind of this Woodstock view of the world. But as I read through it, and I guess because we're conservatives, like it just it doesn't it's not persuasive. You know, like the, the idea that is as long as everyone is behaving in, in a pure and unadulterated fashion, everyone's going to agree on things, I just think is not realistic. And and, uh, you know, I. We, there, there are authoritarian strains on the right and the left, but this is the left authoritarian strain. You know, if debates or dissensions or disturbances arise, then that's when we know that particular interests and that's the decline of the state. You know, that is the enemy. You know, if, mm -hmm. if, um, if we're not all thinking, if, if the general will is, is not in unanimity, if we, if we don't all think the same, it's not because humans are different. It's because certain people are 
either, you know, evil or have bad intentions and they need to be dealt with. Yeah. I think right-wing authoritarianism would be more along the lines of, yeah, you can disagree, but we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's left-wing, you know, they, they want you, it's, they don't want to punish you. They just insist that you agree and go along with it, which amounts, it amounts to the same thing, but it's a different way of approaching the same problem. The, one of the lines that jumps out at me is, uh, he says, when he's talking about individuals who refuse to go along with the general will, they have to uh, be compelled to do so. He says, this means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free. For this is the <laughs> condition which, by giving each citizen to his country, secures him against all personal dependence. Forcing someone to be free is a wild idea. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I that's hard to wrap your head around. But what, what's kind of, I mean, we're starting out the book with a lot of this, you know, everybody's on the same side. We all have to agree. We're all going to do this together, whether you like to or not. But then he also gets into separation of powers in a way that sounds a lot like James Madison. Yeah, yeah. You know, he says, he, he draws up this whole, I guess he, he actually wrote two constitutions, uh, neither of which ever went into effect. He wrote one for Poland, which I think... They didn't accept it, and then they got conquered, so it didn't matter. And he wrote one for Corsica, which also got conquered, I think, by France. But, you know, he, he had ideas about how it wasn't just about the principles. He had the, the nuts and bolts of it, and a lot of that's in this book here. about Well, you're going to have the legislators who do this, and you're going to have the you know, the magistrates who do this. And there's we're not going to get into all the pieces of it, because that, that's a whole separate podcast that's probably a lot less relevant to our times but he's got this whole system and a lot of it is divided powers so it's not that the sovereignty is divided but the people doing things at the behest of the sovereign are divided and that's that's straight out in the federalist papers too i mean that's mm-hmm. he's not the only one to think of this but it's certainly it's it's a that's a part of this book that's way more in line with the american tradition because he's saying you know yeah if the lawmaker also executes the laws well he knows most about the laws so that makes sense but it really introduces this. This is the kind of the first time he's cynical about people in government. He says, you know, it introduces this possibility of the private will overcoming the general will, yeah. which of course is true. I mean, that's sort of like Lord Acton's line about power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. It's yeah. If we let the executive also write the laws and judge whether they've been violated, you, it might work a little bit, you know, it, like that might have worked when George Washington was president, but would it work for the next one or the next one? Eventually you have somebody bad and then it all goes down the tubes. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I agree that, uh, that that he also dabbled in that. And and it seemed to flow, and I don't know if what you think, but it flow out of this idea that I guess he sees modern societies built on physical might. And well, he explains to us why that's not legitimate. He says, force is a physical power. I do not see how its effects could produce morality. Once might is made right, cause and effect are reversed, and every force which overcomes another force inherits the right which belong to the vanquished. As soon as a man can disobey with impunity, his disobedience becomes legitimate. Well, he had a he had a discussion about how, you know, obviously uh, he says humans joined in the civil society. We don't know how or why, but they're in it, and I, he doesn't see it as legitimate because much of it has come to pass as a result of physical force by military might and so forth. And that's kind of, it seems to me where a little bit of his skepticism comes in. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is we, we, we need to push back against that. And of course, then that 
flows right into his conversation about the general will. Like it isn't, it isn't the people who wanted that. It was, it was these, uh, bad, uh, you know, men with evil intentions and they were able to take control through, through their own faction, through their own, you know, physical might. And he says, the only way to preserve ourselves is to unite separate powers in a combination strong enough to overcome any resistance, Mm. you know? And so how to form an association which will defend the person and goods of each member with the collective force of all and under which each individual, which uniting himself with the others obeys no one but himself and remains as free as before. This is the fundamental problem to which the social contract holds the solution. So in this conversation, he seemed to sound a lot more like Locke, you know, they were more, more in, in the camp together of, and, and even Hobbes like, well, actually there are going to be bad people. So what we need to do is form the social pact and that it's, and it's more than just expressing the general will. It's also to protect ourselves from, from the, the mighty and the physically strong. Yeah. And, and uh, the one, one line sounded so familiar along those lines is that I, I had to look up something else. So he wrote, I mean, Rousseau, Rousseau wrote, were there a people of gods, their government would be democratic. So perfect a government is not for men. And then <laughs> that reminded me of what Madison said in the Federalist Papers, which is, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Yeah. So it's, it's, this is why this, I, I thought this was a really interesting read because you'd read a chapter and like, yeah, that's, that's definitely makes a lot of sense. And you read the next chapter and you're like, nope, that's crazy. <laughs> so it, it's really, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, he, it's fascinating. Well, it's uh, to, to boot, I mean, to, to that point, um, on the one page, he sounds like that quote sounds a whole lot like Madison, but you know, Madison's quote about, about angels that you just read or just quoted. Well, here's what Rousseau says. Men are not natural enemies. It is conflicts over things, not quarrels between men, which constitutes war. I mean, does this, does this sound like, you know, modern day chop and jazz folks and, oh, yeah. and, you know, and the state of war cannot arise from mere personal relations, but only from property relations. Private wars between one man and another can exist neither in a state of nature where there is no fixed property nor in society where everything is under the authority of law. So, so suddenly it's very different than, than Locke and very different than Madison because he'll say, Madison says, men are not angels. If they were, then, then we can do all these different cool things, but we can't. And Rousseau's like, well, actually they kind of are like angels. And really the only reason they're fighting is because of property. Property is, and, and you know, in Locke's telling property is the reason people got to, uh, people combined into civil society, left the state of nature is just to protect their property for Rousseau. It's like, well, I don't know why they left the state of nature to enter into civil society, but once they did, they all had property and that's what caused all these fights and the quarrels and the wars. Yeah. And that's what he has a big piece on equality that you could see leads into the French revolutionary concept of liberty, fraternity, and equality because he puts liberty and equality as, as equal two two equal concerns of the state and he, he's talking more about equal results although he says that exactly equal results and exactly equal you know wealth and, and things is never is never going to happen but just because that can't happen doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue a more equitable society he says mm-hmm. such equality we're told is an unpractical and ideal that cannot actually exist but if its abuse is inevitable, does it follow that we should not at least make regulations concerning it? And that's the kind of, I think his 
like you were saying, he thinks that property is the cause of conflict. So if everyone had roughly the same property, not exactly the same, but pretty close, then we'd never fight. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I mean, it's one thing people fight about, but I don't think most wars are a poor country invading a rich country to get their stuff. I mean, it's often countries that are roughly equivalent in, in wealth, um, especially in, in his day. I mean, France was the most prosperous country in Europe in his time, and they ended up invading uh, everything after the revolution because that, that those the, rev, the French, the wars that followed the French Revolution were not about property. They were about ideology. Mm-hmm. You know, the all the various kings hated this new republic, and the republic hated them right back, and it was inevitable. And that's, you know, I mean, and even in the personal level, you know, I think people are more likely to hate their neighbor for some reason besides his house is too nice, you know, or his car is too good. You know, people, people are going to hate their neighbor because he doesn't cut his lawn right or because he's a jerk <laughs> or because he, you know, litters on your property or something. You know, mm-hmm. there's the reasons that folks want to fight either at this individual level or at the national level. I don't I don't think property figures that much into it. But maybe that's like you said, maybe that's because we're reading this as conservatives and not as liberals. But it's something. I mean, there's definitely envy and, you know, people think it's, you know, not, not good that somebody has so many billions and somebody else has nothing. And, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's not great, but I don't think it's the cause of all conflict. Equality clearly is very, very important to Rousseau. And he, he does provide, you know, provision for property. Yes, you can hold property. Yes. Okay. You probably need to have some stuff. But he says the right of any individual over his own estate is always subordinate to the right of the community over everything. You know, the greatest of all good comes down to the objectives of freedom and equality. And for him, he, he, he actually gives us a, a definition, which I found interesting. Equality, he said, well, quickly, I'll say, uh, to, to your point, like he did, he did specify that equality isn't as radical as complete egalitarian sort of everybody has exactly the same stuff. So he's, he sort of said, well, maybe not everybody's going to have exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And he does touch the third rail by saying humans have different levels of, uh, he says unequal in strength and intelligence, but men become equal by covenant, by right, by entering into these legitimate uh, social structures. But all right. So he, equality, he tells us, Power should stop. Sh- it's two things. Here's the first. Power should stop short of violence, and never be exercised except by virtue of authority and law. And it just really jumped out of me the whole fight against the police. I mean, yeah. Not not to say there are not some legitimate gripes against the police. I uh, would be the first to say there definitely is. But but the the level that we're seeing right now. I mean, doesn't that really just jump out of you? Like power should stop short of violence, because if once you cross that line, then you're 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 violating this, uh, this virtue of equality, egalitarian society. That's the first. And the second, no citizen shall be rich enough to buy another and none so poor as to force to be forced to sell himself. And he, there's this really great footnote where he says, do you want coherence in the state? Then bring the two extremes of rich and poor as close together as possible. Have neither very rich nor beggars for these two estates naturally inseparable are equally fatal to the common good. And I mean, this is like, you know, the, the 99%. And I think that these two factors just 
carry forward to today in, in such a profound way, you know, mm-hmm. stopping short of any power to stop short of violence. That's one. And then number two, we need, we don't, uh, we, what we need is uh, a leveling where there's relatively equal, even if it's not exactly the same, that the, the peaks and valleys are so much closer together. We don't have, we don't have billionaires and, and homeless. Instead, we have sort of a middle, um, everyone is more or less in the middle. Is that how you read it? Yeah. It made me think of people who you know, talk about the high income tax rates of the New Deal and subsequent, you know, that were in effect until the 50s and 60s as that, you know, a lot of people look at something from the 50s and talk about how it produced America's golden age, you know, whatever that thing happens to be. And I think a lot of that is a lot of, a lot of what made the fifties so prosperous in America is that the rest of the world was destroyed. So we were the only ones making stuff, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, we also did have higher taxes and you know, they, you know, there's always these charts about what this percentile made and this percentile made. And it also ignores that there was this whole segregation thing going on that, you know, kind of contradicted that, but a lot of your, uh, like anti-monopoly and anti rich kind of folks will focus on what Rousseau is talking about right here. And then use that to look back to the 50s and early 60s, an era they normally hate and think is too conformist and, you know, crushing the counterculture and say, well, at least they got the taxes right. So you're right. I think it carries through. And I think there are folks who, just as Rousseau seems to do, think that economic leveling is going to fix everything. You know, it's going to it's going to solve all the big problems of society. But it's a. uh, yeah, this this section felt very modern uh, because yeah. we're still hearing these things today. Yeah, and just to repeat, the right of any individual over his estate, over his own estate, is always subordinate to the right of the community over everything. And entering the, the the equation is okay. So this was this was divided up to you by the community, and the community can take it back. That's very different than Locke, who would say. No, this was yours and you claimed it. And what you, the reason you left the state of nature is to keep it safe and under control. You know, it's almost like a kind of a, a, a religious concept of like everything was given by God. And so it's going to be divided and he can take it away. You know, the, only in this case, it's the state, it's the collective. And, and that's very interesting. I think you and I would probably easily agree that, you know, it is better to have a, a, a huge middle class and have the bulk of America be middle class and, mm-hmm. and you know, that's what we have. And, yeah, and I think, I, I think that where I, I guess would push back on, on these, uh, these next generation of, you know, Rousseau thinkers is sort of like, I think Rousseau was writing at a time where you had extreme rich and extreme and then every, and a handful of extreme rich aristocrats. And then, and then the bulk of the people were living in squalor. Definitely. Yeah. Rousseau's coming from a time and it's similar to Marx really, you know, where it's, you know, the rich might be the 1% in his time, but the middle class is like the 5% tops. And then yeah. you've got 94% poor peasants. And that's that. Yeah. That doesn't, that situation doesn't prevail anymore. And it doesn't because of capitalism, because, you know, uh, liberty and economic opportunity allowed people a way out of that through the means you said by, it let people produce something that people wanted to buy, let people, you know, move around and take different jobs. So that level of inequality that is it prevailed in Rousseau's time. I mean, 
doesn't really exist anymore in in the West. And when people talk about inequality now, they they will focus on the fact that Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion dollars. Okay, but it's mm-hmm. but it's not like everybody else has two dollars, you know, which would have been more like the situation of you know Louis the Sixteenth and all of the various uh, dirt poor farmers around France. Yeah. So it's, I yeah I understand his want, and also because Louis's wealth was not earned. You know, I mean the king was rich, but right, yeah. because of taxes. You know, the king wasn't like making Amazon the way Bezos did, which we all use frequently. I mean, i I bought the I bought this book on Amazon, so I, <laughs> most of them. Likewise, I, yeah. So it, you know, it's it, the rich. The only really rich people in Rousseau's day were you know, monarchs who got their money just by taking it. Um, so yeah, yeah that, and that, makes, that, you, that I, makes you more revolutionary, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that's the situation. I, I should say when I say most people are doing well in America, I, I don't mean that everyone is you know living high on the hog, but I guess just kind of relative to to the pre-revolution France. Where, oh yeah, right. you know we have running water, and most people have food and have access to some healthcare, you know, it could be better. Everything could be better, but so I don't mean to say that everything is hunky dory, but, uh, but relatively speaking, um, one other, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, you know, going back to his, well, I guess his, his words that kind of lead in the direction of, of sort of left wing authoritarianism is he has a, he has a conversation about dictatorship where he says the sacred power of the laws should never be suspended except when the safety of the fatherland is at stake. This activity should be concentrated in the hands of one or two members of the government. And if the danger is the apparatus of law itself, then a supreme head must be nominated with power to silence all laws and temporarily suspend the sovereign authority. In such a case, the general will is indubitable, for it is clear that the prime concern of the people is that the state shall not perish. So in other words, the general will, of course... It's clearly that they want one person to take charge. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, obviously I had that scene from, from Star Wars running through my mind, you know, <laughs> of, of uh, Emperor Palpatine, like taking, taking control because, you know, we needed to bring order. And obviously like the current president has, has, has received these same criticisms and, and throughout uh, American history. You know, I think, I think the founders, I think Madison and Hamilton would both say like, this is the reason we have a constitution in the first place is to, mm-hmm. <laughs> is to avoid this. So it's kind of like, uh, the, fa- the founders are taking ideas from all, it, I, I guess I, I gained also a new appreciation of the founders and their thinking and their study because they're taking, as you said, from Rousseau, but they're also looking at that and being like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah nope. that, well, that part's not going to work. <laughs> and, and sort of his, his check on that is that, well, the, the law is going to require that such dictatorial powers would lapse after a certain time and couldn't be renewed. It's like, boy, that puts a lot of trust in the dictator to follow that law. Though. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it, it, in Roman times, it, and, he, and he, he does write a lot about the Roman Republic. This did happen sometimes when they had dictators, uh, you know, for a, a period uh, during an invasion or something. And then the, that dictator would give up his power and it go, would go back to the Senate until it didn't. And, you know, eventually it didn't. You know, eventually you get Caesar crossing the Rubicon and, you know, getting stabbed, but then they still ended up with an empire under yeah. his great nephew and never went. They still called themselves a republic, but they never went back. The Senate became just a talking shop where, you you know, some of your friends would be in it, you know. 
but the emperor was the emperor for the last, you know, 500 years or so of, of the, uh, the Roman Republic. It wasn't a Republic. And that's, I think that's what we all know what happened is, you know, there, we talk about president's emergency powers and that's been a big conversation since Woodrow Wilson's day, or even, even Abraham Lincoln did some things, you know, in the middle of a civil war that he wouldn't have done had it been just an ordinary presidency. Right. Right. But I mean, if we, even if we look at those minor steps on the way to tyranny, nobody's giving them up, are they? You know, I mean, every president seems to like his emergency powers as vague as they are to, to stay just how they are. Nobody wants to give that up. And I, yeah, it gives you a kind of a shiver to read that because you, you get where he's coming from. Sometimes a drastic measure must be taken if, this, if the state is being invaded, you know, an enemy is conquering you, you might have to requisition property without due process, you know? Yeah. We say, wait, we need that for the war, you know? So we'll send you a bill later or something, you know, but now rights have to be set aside. I just, I'm with you. I don't think, I, I think uh, there's no way to write that into the law that will also prevent it from being abused. I think that's right. And shiver, I think, is the right description because even in our current time where there's, come on, there's a lot of chaos and <clears throat> any number of people would, would look at that and say, we, we just need to bring order to this for a short period of time. And once we're back on track, then, okay, then we'll go back to normal. Or yeah, right. And so it's, you know, eminently understandable why why people would want us a, a strong man. And whether it's on the right or the left, I think that it's, one of the great dangers. And, and I, and I think what, uh, you know, Madison had in mind with, um, you know, his drafting of the constitution, but uh, one more issue, uh, as we get late here that, that I didn't want to miss. And that is his sensorial tribunal. So like basically the ministry of censorship, mm-hmm. he says needs to be created just as the general will is declared by the law. So is the public judgment declared by the censorial office. Public opinion is that form of law which the censor is the minister, and which he merely applies to a particular case. The censorial office sustains morals by preventing opinions from being corrupted. We're going to keep you on the straight and narrow, okay? Mm. By preserving their integrity with wise rulings, and sometimes even settling points on which opinion is uncertain. So all we're doing is expressing the general will, what everyone else would already think. It's just that you clearly are confused and have gone down a wrong path and we're going to bring you back on the right path. I mean, <laughs> yeah, is this 1984 or what? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's wild from a guy whose, whose writings made him, you know, they, he was sentenced in absentia. You know, he, oh yeah. There were warrants out for him because of the stuff he wrote about religion, which we didn't even get into here because his ideas on religion are out there. He's not, he doesn't really think the Christian churches, uh, doesn't think it really works. So saying that in 18th century Europe, in almost any country, would usually get you arrested. Right. So here's a guy who's, you know, being censored, not in the sense of like how Americans today will call themselves, you know, like we talk about banned books because some library refused to have the book in it, right? You can still buy it, but it's, you know, it's banned. These were real banned books. Like, oh, you own that? You're going to jail. You're not allowed to read those words. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so to hear him come out with this idea is that, oh, yeah, the, the general will should censor, you know, the, the people because that's, you know, it only makes sense. It's just, that's one of those, you know, but 
the general world might not always agree with you. What then? You know, I mean, yeah, that's that's the caution we should all take every time we think the government should have power. It's like, all right, but imagine your enemies have it. Is it, are you still happy? Like, you still like yeah. it now? Right. It, it's not good, is it? Yeah. And he, uh, but it flows from this sort of blank slate view of, of human nature that, yes. that it's just a, a tabula rasa ready to be painted upon and, and it's only society and the ownership of property that's created all these problems. Otherwise everyone would agree and, and be kind of autonomous automatons in the rowing in the same direction. But I mean, you imagine uh, a ministry of truth like this today. I mean, hmm. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that's exactly what we need. Of course, what they think is the truth is going to differ as wildly, you know. As <laughs> yeah, a lot of them who, who would call for that also would not like President Trump appointing the members of the <laughs> you Ministry of Truth, right? It's, it's like, yeah, but you're not going to be in charge every year. Yeah, yeah that, that, That's the one that baffles me so often is people call for government action but also hate the president. Like, well, who, who do you think is going to do it? You know, that's, that's the guy. Oh yeah. And we've seen what's happened to contemporary journalism where, you know, they tried to play that role of arbiter for the last, you know, 50 years or what objective observer. And, uh, I mean, now you have the New York times who's, who thinks they're the vanguard of the revolution. And (laughs) yeah, it's just, I think you, I mean, I I guess this is why I'm conservative is I, I, I think, you know, like, uh, Thomas Sowell that this is, there's just, it's just a very different vision and, and it's not an, an accurate one. So, all right. What are your closing thoughts? Um, well, I think you, if you read this book, you will see, uh, some of the good ideas that ended up mixed in with our own American founding generation. And you can also see a lot of the bad ideas that we're, that fortunately for us living in America, our, our founders, uh, decided not to adopt. I don't think, I, I think that we often see this debate between mankind as blank slate or, and mankind as immutable, you know, being there's a little of both. I, I think the answer is in between. I think we're mostly not blank slates. I think that there is human nature and, and Rousseau doesn't seem to think there is. I think he thinks laws can shape us the same way the Soviets thought laws could just change everybody into being the perfect communist man. I don't think that's true, but I think that, you know, we can, I don't think we have to go so far as to say that laws can never fix any behavior. They usually reflect behavior. They can occasionally change it. So I think that there's still value in seeing it from the other side. And also it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's good to, it's good to know where our ideas come from and they, you'll find some of that here in the social contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really glad we read this now uh, because you can imagine if we read this a year ago, we would have focused more on the similarities and, and, pulling out what, you know, to your point, the, the founders used and, and really influenced their thinking versus reading it right now in the, in the current context, it just it read differently for me, I think, because you could see so many of the, you know, Rousseau is sort of that proto uh, 99% or whatever. And, and you could kind of mm-hmm. see the strains um, in, in this early thought that's, that's been developed and you could see where it would go in the direction of potentially uh, influence French Revolution thinking and that sort of thing. But anyway, good stuff. Hey, for all of those of you who, who are still in college and and reading this stuff, well, Kyle and I were talking beforehand about how I remember reading this in college and thinking I was completely lost. And these days, now that we've read a few books, I could, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. much more accessible. So 
Yeah, you'll, right. you'll like it better when you're 40. <laughs> so look forward to that. All right. That's Rousseau. Catch us next time.